Well, good morning. Welcome to Hope. Welcome for those of you who are joining us online. I'm Pastor Trevor. I'm glad you could join us on this brisk, very cold morning. I was going to say refreshing, but it's not refreshing. It's just straight up cold. Um, I'm not going to try to code it. So I got a book recommendation. Uh, this book is not in, um, it's not in our library. It's in my library. Uh, so you're more than welcome to borrow dealing with all my Shepherds by Vadi Bakum. It's about calling, equipping men to lead their homes. So men, uh, if you are curious in how you or why you ought to shepherd your family, this would be a good go-to source for you, a good starting point in regards to equipping you to lead your children, but not only your children, your wives as well. Uh, it's also, uh, I would recommend it uh, for the women as well, uh, so you know how to support your husband um, in this endeavor um, and give you the theology behind it as well. So I'd make an excellent gift uh, to somebody who might be getting married, wants to be married, um, has a family. Um, don't get it as a gift, you know, to, um, you know, like, hit them over the head with it, you know. Give it to them in love with gentleness. Be like, hey, this is a great book. You should read it. Um, but don't be like, hint, hint. All right? Um, he's got some good appendixes in here uh, for um, tools and uh, actual resources you can use beyond the theology of why men are responsible for the discipling of um, their family. It's not too long of a book. Um, it's under two, well under 200 pages. It's an easy read. So again, that's uh, Vadi Bak- It's by Vadi Bakum uh, called Family Shepherds. If you borrow it from me, please let me know um, and make sure that um, I get it back in a reasonable amount of time would be appreciated, uh, but I won't rush you if you're actually reading it, all right? Um, now, this morning, we're taking a break from Second Samuel because we are going into our life groups, starting our life groups today. Uh, so our passage is Ephesians 4, 17 uh, through 5, 2, um, on the topic of uh, what life is meant to be like within a gospel community. Now, if you need a Bible, uh, because remember, this week, we're not going to be projecting the main passage on the screen, um, and we're not going to be doing that going forward. So if you need a Bible for reference, we have Bibles in the back. Um, if you have a Bible with you now, go ahead and open, turn there, and um, you can also pull it up on your app. But before we begin, let's go to our Father in heaven in prayer. Mighty Father, we come before you humbly, and we ask that you would forgive us for our sins, uh, a forgiveness that we know we can ask for, and we know is granted to us on the basis of the work of your Son, Um, And we thank you for that work, and we thank you that we can enter into your presence boldly asking for wisdom, and we can ask it without reproach, Father. And we ask it now that you would give us that wisdom, that you would um, grant us the power of the Spirit, the discernment of the Spirit, the conviction from the Spirit um, into our lives, into our souls, that we may humble ourselves before your word here this morning, and that you would be able to burst forth with your glory and glorify yourself uh, through your word, Uh, through your spirit that dwells within us, and we may be the vessels of light that you call us to be. So help us to gaze our attentive hearts, our attentive souls to your truth here this morning. Protect us from the worries, the burdens, uh, the spiritual forces that would seek to distract us this morning, um, and help us to hear what we need to hear, Father. And we ask this for your glory by the power of the Spirit. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. So our gospel is not a simple proclamation of 
God's good news. It is not simply just a birth certificate that announces the details of a significant life event, like your born-again moment, your salvation experience. It does include such things, but the gospel is much more than that. It is a proclamation not just of a new birth, but of a new life that is to be lived. It is a call to action. The kingdom is here, so we act accordingly. And so it's not just any action, but it's a very specific action, a call given to us by God through his son and through his apostles. The gospel also is not a ticket to claim a seat within the church. It is a ticket to enter into the kingdom of God, more specifically into the throne room of God, to reap of his grace, to reap of his love and his mercy and his wisdom, so that you may fill your cup up and then go out with that full cup and share it with others. If your life of faith is simply contained within the seat cushion of which you warm your rump this morning, then your rump may be warm, but your soul is cold and missing out on the warmth of holy living. This holy living is a living that is markedly different than our previous lives and different than those who still live in darkness. And it's not simply because we avoid certain vices, because sometimes we just we don't avoid certain vices that we should but rather it's because it's how we love one another and how we imitate our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This living that occurs, occurs throughout the week, not just for two hours on Sunday morning or two hours on Saturday evening. It is a living that occurs within community, not in isolation, which is why we are launching our life groups to help us to live in the manner that is expected in accordance to God's holy word. So then we have a few questions that we need to answer. Well, how then do we live with each other? How are we to conduct ourselves in the midst of a community full of varying personalities, varying temperaments, and varying cultures? How does a Packer fan get along with a Bears fan? How do those who hate Tom Brady get along with a pastor who appreciates Tom Brady? Our text, Ephesians 4, 17, 5, 2, will help us in answering this question, these questions. Before we get into our text, uh, which speaks of this new way of living, let us consider Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 briefly and remind ourselves of the unity and diversity that exists within the body. Now, if you're struggling uh, to find Ephesians, um, it is after, let me look at my notes, it is between Galatians and Philippians, which is after Corinthians, which is after Romans. So it's in the back third part of your Bible if you're still trying to uh, get there. Now, if you're a note taker, um, we're going to go over Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 briefly, but when I mean briefly, I mean quickly. All right, so if you're a note taker, really take, take the notes. We're not going to read it, and we're just going to breeze right, right through it. So the first 16 verses of chapter 4 speak to the unity that is found in the person of Jesus Christ, which Paul initially speaks about back in chapter 2. And now here in chapter 4, Paul speaks of that unity in a variety of ways. In verse 3, he speaks of the unity of the Spirit. In verses 4 through 6, we are told that we belong to one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. All of which, this unity, is accomplished by verse 2 in humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another. And this unity isn't like a, a unity that lacks diversity. No, rather, it's a unity that is full of di diversity. And not only in, ethnic, in, in ethnicity and socioeconomic differences, 
but also diversity of gifting as well. And this gifting that is given to each one of us is used, verse 12, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body. And when we speak of the building up of the body of Christ, we're speaking of the edification of the body of Christ, uh, an edification that ultimately leads to maturity, verse 13. And that edification, that building up the body, that leads to um, maturity in community, allows us to be grounded in the truth, verse 14. Uh, by being grounded in the truth, we're not tossed to and fro with every fad, every creative, deceptive scheme that society uh, comes up with on how God is to be worshipped or on other theological matters or what the church is supposed to act like um, in its current day and age. And we have to remember that every heretic has a verse. Right? No heresy that's come up within the history of church was absent scripture. It, almost every heresy, you can go to scripture and pull that verse. And this is where the community of believers is necessary. That way, if I were to come up to, with a, a reading from scripture that's heretical, the body would say, no, that's, that's wrong. And they would correct me. That's how we stay grounded in the truth. That's how we build up into the head of Christ. So we need one another to stay faithful, to stay grounded. And all of this, verses 15 to 16, all of this is done in love. When it's done in love, it leads to the body growing up in Christ when it is properly joined, when it's properly equipped, and properly working together. Now let me address the statement in verse 15 quickly on speaking the truth in love as this is a hot uh, phrase uh, nowadays, right? Speak the truth in love. Well, what does that mean? Well, it does not mean uh, that what is said is always, that what is said always sounds sweet, or comforting, or pleasant, or pleasing, as if, well, you, you didn't say that, you, that didn't comfort me when you said that. That doesn't mean it's absent of love. Sometimes it's just, it's uncomfortable. Love sometimes is hard to swallow. Love is not, I mean, truth, excuse me, truth is not like medicine where you can add a spoonful of sugar to help it go down. Sometimes it's just hard to swallow. Sometimes it is hard to hear. Yes, we ought to consider on how we can present the truth, how to frame the truth to help the hearer receive the truth. But sometimes there's just nothing to be said to soften it. And sometimes what people need isn't a warm and cozy faith or a truth uh, wrapped in a blanket, warmed up and handed to them. They need to feel the coldness of the truth. They need to have the door open and feel that cold breeze of reality hit them in their face to, to shock them, to wake them, to get their attention, to cause their heart to quicken. But without all that being said, though, again, we must not be careless or callous in our efforts. We should still strive to be patient and gentle as we deliver that truth in love. So how do we know when truth is spoken in love, then, if the delivery or style isn't always indicative of that. Well, it's a matter of the speaker's motives. We, when we speak truth, we don't speak truth to condemn. We don't speak truth to tear down. We don't speak truth out of bitter, bitterness, pride, or envy. We, we're not speaking truth to get the I told you so moments. We don't speak truth essentially for our own gain. That's what false teachers do. They speak truth, well, they speak a deceitful uh, lie for their own gain. We don't speak that when we speak to one another, we do it for the gain of the hearer. To speak truth and love is to speak to you like for your benefit, for your betterment, not mine, but for yours, for each other. Um, we speak it for their good. And we, when we speak it in love, right, we recognize this is going to hurt sometimes, right? 
not speaking in love would be like, well, it might or might not hurt, and I don't care. But no, like, this is for your good, and I understand this is going to hurt. Therefore, I'm going to speak this truth to you with open arms. I'm not just going to throw the book at you and walk away. I'm going to hand you the book and walk with you through this process. And then on the flip side, as hearers, when we receive the truth, we need to understand that we must never discount what is true because it was said with poor form. There's too much at stake for us to neglect our own edification, our own sanctification, our own being made righteous because another sinner, now notice I said another sinner because like me, you are a sinner as well, but because another imperfect, fallible sinner lacked tact in giving you truth or they chose the wrong words or they lacked the proper emotional intelligence for that particular situation, for that particular setting. We need to learn to bear with one another. Therefore, as I bear with you, you bear with me. And as we go into our life groups, this would be all the more important. Right now, it's easy for you as you sit there quietly, not talking to one another. But the minute you start opening your mouths outside of these walls, people are going to be offended. People are going to get hurt. So we need to learn to bear with one another. And we'll get more into that later. So let's go ahead and read our main text. We're going to read the whole passage of verses 17 through verse 2 of chapter 5. And then as we work our way through it, uh, we will um, reread them um, as we go through. So Ephesians 4, 17 five, uh, through 5, 2. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do and the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. <clears throat> be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So starting out here in verses 17 through 19, uh, Paul charges us to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And when Paul speaks of walking, he's talking about living. To walk is to live, is to conduct yourself in a certain way. So to walk is simply a a term, a, a figure of speech to reference how we 
live, how we conduct ourselves. And when Paul speaks of Gentiles, he's not contrasting between Jews and Gentiles. He's contrasting between believing Gentiles and non-believing Gentiles. Remember, Ephesians is a circular letter, um, and those in Ephesus were primarily Gentile uh, with mixed backgrounds. Uh, so he's, he's calling those who are in Christ, um, he's contrasting those who are in Christ with the unbelieving Gentile, because when either a Jew or a Gentile becomes a believer, they leave their former identity behind and embrace the new one, that of Christ. So, What's wrong with how the Gentiles walk? Or another way to say for us today is, what's wrong with how the Americans walk? Or how those of regular society walk? Well, Paul starts it with, well, it's how they think. Their thinking is futile. It is empty. It is vain. And that shouldn't be hard for us to see or believe. Simply consider what occupies the minds of Americans and what they spend most of their time watching or the music that the world glorifies. Uh, this thinking is a thinking that elevates, as we've seen this past year, political agenda over truth or athletes um, on complex social matters over learned, educated, and experienced voices on such matters. Or Americans prefer to um, read Twitter and tweets over books on complex uh, sociological, theological, and historical issues as if complex uh, problems can be solved or figured out by simple tweets. This futile way of thinking ultimately lacks substance and it is full of idolatry where the creation and the creature is worshipped while the creator is ignored. When the creator is ignored, when his will, his intention, his purpose for the creation, for the creature is ignored, that's when the thinking then becomes futile, becomes pointless. It has gone off the rails. It is off the tracks. This leads to their understanding being darkened, being evil, thus they live separated from God. And as they live separated from God, they continue in their darkness. Their hearts are hard towards God. They are ignorant. And when you're separated from God, you are separated from the light. Therefore, they have no light in their thinking. They have no light in their world views because they are alienated from the light. Thus, because of that, they have given themselves over to their own selfish and greedy desires. Now, this description uh, that Paul writes here in these short verses, he actually expounds on it more in Romans 1, 18, 32, when he speaks to mankind um, being intentional and rejecting the light and God giving them over to the darkness. And we're seeing it uh, today um, clearly um, in America, though it's nothing new. Uh, this, this happens throughout history. I mean, it will only get worse, though, as we uh, spiral onward to the end of this age. So this is not how we are to live. We are not called to live as the Gentiles are, are living. We are to live lives that are different, and markedly so. We should be living in such a way that the world sees it and recognizes it, and we should be living in such a way that the church recognizes uh, us as one of their own. <clears throat> so after charging believers to not live as Gentiles do, Paul then goes on in verses 20 through, 30, 20 through 32 to tell us then how we should live. And he breaks it up into two parts. The first part, verses 20 through 24, speaks to our position in relation to Christ as those who are not alienated, not far off like the Gentiles, but rather those who know or have learned Christ. 
The second part, verses 25 through 32, Paul then gets into the practice of our lives in light of the truth of having learned Christ. So let's go ahead and reread verses 20 through 24. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. Two, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So there are three specific things here that, that a person learns when they learn Christ that Paul reminds us of. And the first is when you learn Christ, you learn to put off the old self. You learn to deny yourself, to reject your former identity, to reject your former ways of thinking and living, the ways of the world, the ways of the Gentiles, the ways of Americans, and the ways that are ungodly and unholy. And we do so because we are citizens of a greater kingdom, an enduring kingdom. Therefore, we have no business acting like pagans. We have no business sounding like pagans. We have no business getting caught up in the same anxieties and worries that pagans have. The only business that you and I should be getting caught up in is the Father's business. That is advancing his kingdom, proclaiming his truth. That's proclaiming his gospel, displaying his mercy, justice, and righteousness wherever and whenever God has placed us. That's our task. That is our purpose. So we need to be careful, though, because in that task, we're called to be engaging with the world, right? We need to do business with the world. We should be involved in politics. We should be involved in the matters of the world for, for the sake of God's glory, for the sake of his righteousness. So we have to be careful that we, we have to be intentional in putting off our old self, because the old self, it's corrupt. It is fallen. It is full of desires, and it will mislead us. It will distract us from our primary purpose, and it will cause us to sin. It will cause us to chase after futile and fleeting satisfactions. So we must be intentional and disciplined in shedding this skin. You cannot put off the old self just by sitting back and relaxing. You need to be intentional in this with the power of the Spirit that is within you. The second thing, those who have learned Christ do is they renew their minds. In other words, they no longer think as Gentiles think in their futility. They think of things that are edifying. They think of things that are worthy of our time. If we want to live as we are called to live, as holy and living sacrifices, then we must renew our minds. Romans 12, 1 through 2, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice or a walking sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And this transformation, this power, it comes from the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And the Spirit works through the Word of God. So we must be willing to feed our minds and our souls with the teachings of Scripture. Without the Word of God, there will be no renewal. That means when we view Scripture, when we go to Scripture, we have to make sure we view it rightly. We recognize that Scripture is fully authoritative. 
we recognize that it is perfectly infallible and inerrant in the original manuscripts without error. And most significantly, especially in this day and age, Scripture is fully sufficient. It was simply sufficient, relevant, or pertinent for, excuse me, it was not. It was not simply sufficient, relevant, or pertinent for a particular point in time or for a particular people, right? Some people will look at Scripture and be like, well, that only mattered to them back then. That doesn't apply to us today. No, the whole of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, the 39 books of the Old Testament, and the 27 books of the New Testament, all of that is sufficient for everyone for all of time, regardless of skin color, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender or cultural influences. The color of your skin does not change the meaning of scripture. Your gender does not change the meaning of scripture. Whatever background you have does not change the meaning of scripture. How it applies to your life might vary, yes, but the meaning of it is the same for me as it is for you, as it was for people 2,000 years ago, and 3,000 years ago, and 4,000 years ago. The meaning is the same, but how we apply it can vary. Scripture is fully sufficient. We must not think that it is not, or that certain parts of it, well, this one, yeah, this works for us today, but that, no, it can't clearly. You know, homosexuality, it's, it's different now. Premarital sex, it's different now. We have birth control, we have ways, no, that's all foolishness. It is an all-knowing, all-powerful God has delivered us his word from the time it was written, has preserved it for our instruction, for teaching and training in, in righteousness. All of scripture is God-breathed, uh, and because it is, it is authoritative, it is sufficient, it is infallible and inerrant. The third thing that Paul mentions that a person learns when they have learned Christ is to put on the new self. The old self was tied to Adam. The new self is tied with Christ. Therefore, to put on the new self is to take on a new identity, the identity of Jesus Christ. And this echoes Colossians 3, 9, 11, where Paul writes, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is our identity. Notice something about these terms that are listed in verse 11. Greek, Jew, slave-free, etc. All these terms are not representative of the qualities that lie within inside a person, right? You're not, you're not certain, these aren't qualities, you're not Greek because of what's inside of you. You're a Greek because of the community in which you find yourself in. All these terms are, are how we identify or how these people identify with a community of people. Likewise, our faith is not an individualistic faith. It is one of community. Therefore, to identify as a, as a Christian, to identify in, to be in Christ, to identify with the body means you have to be part of a body. You have to be part of the community. You cannot identify with Christ and remain in a silo, in isolation. That's not identifying with Christ. You need to be within a community to take on this new identity. We leave these identities behind because they belong to Adam, and we embrace the new eternal communal identity which is found in Christ. 
As such, we are to reflect the likeness of Christ, our creator, not just simply the creator of mankind, creator of all things, but those of us who have been born again. As his Holy Spirit regenerated our souls and caused us to be born again, um, and we are given new souls, we're made a new creation, uh, we reflect the likeness of Christ, which is righteousness and holiness. This new life is marked by self-control and holy living. Romans 13, 12 through 14. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Notice this is very similar to what Paul's writing here in Ephesians. And notice, notice these words he's using. Right? He uses uh, uh, cast off, put on, let us walk, put on. We, th- you have to be intentional here. Like an athlete that practices, uh, like somebody who gets up at 5 o'clock to go work out. You can't just lay in bed and expect this to happen. We have to commit ourselves to this way of life. We need to, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We make no provision, no opportunity for the flesh to gratify its desires. We have to be intentional. We have to put Christ on. To use an illustration given by Jesus, consider Matthew eleven twenty nine. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When an ox takes an oak, a, excuse me, a, an oak, a yoke upon itself, it goes where the lead ox goes, where the stronger ox goes. Thus, when we put the yoke of Christ upon us, we go where Christ goes. We experience what he experiences. So to learn from Christ, to learn from him, is to submit ourselves and to follow after him. And if you pay attention to scripture, you know where Christ goes. He goes to Calvary. He goes to suffering. He goes to the cross. He goes to rejection he goes, and he does so in full obedience, and he does so in love for the world that hates him. That's where we need to go. And so when we take the yoke of Christ, we submit ourselves to his teachings, to his commands, uh, to his word, as given to us by those who also have learned Christ faithfully. Now, I pray that you understand that there's nothing in Scripture that conveys the idea that a person of faith, a person who is born again, lives, talks, and walks like those of the world, lives, talks, and walks like unbelieving Gentiles. If people complain to you that all you talk about is God, well, good. Or that every time a worldview, a political, social issue comes up and you tackle it from the perspective of God's word, well, praise God. Or you orient your life around the activities of the church, around your life group, or of that of the faith and not your career, not academics, not sports, not your family, and that upsets or confuses people, well, God bless you and thank you for loving others enough to share with them God's word and demonstrating to them the reality of its truth. The world does not need another faith to get in bed with, to cozy up with and to cuddle and to stay warm with. The world needs the one true faith to kick the world out of bed into the coldness of the night to wake it up. That's how we need to live. That is what we are called to live. And we do so because we love the world. Now, having learned Christ, that is putting off the old self, renewing our minds, putting on the new self, the new creation, Paul goes on and gives us specific examples on what life of true righteousness and holiness looks like in verses 25 
through 32. Let's go ahead and reread those verses. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So verse 25, we are called to be honest with each other. Having put off our old self, putting on the new self, therefore falsehood, deceit, should be put away. It should not be part of our lives. We should not see it. Thus we are to speak truth to one another. Now to clarify, when Paul uses the word neighbor here, in the immediate context, he's talking about fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow believers. He's not here in the immediate context talking about your neighbor across the street who's an unbeliever, but your brother and sister in Christ. And that should be clear by the context here, and, and not just only in the immediate context here, as well as in the chapter and the whole letters about the body of Christ. But of course, as much as this is true for how we should speak to one another within the body, we should also speak truthfully to those outside of the body. It is still true in that regard. Hugh Latimer, who we talked about um, a few weeks ago, was referred to by King Henry VIII as honest Hugh Latimer because he faithfully preached the text of Scripture to King Henry despite the king's own sins. I found this quote this morning. I didn't have it last night, but I found it this morning, but I want to share it from Spurgeon. Spurgeon writes of of, um, Hugh this way. He says, Henry VIII would listen to Hugh Latimer, though he denounced him to his face and even sent him on his birthday a handkerchief on which was marked the text, whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Hebrews 13.4. Henry cried, let us hear honest Hugh Latimer. Even bad men admire those who tell them the truth. Of course, we all know history. Uh, Eventually, bad men won't admire the truth, and you'll end up at the stake or on the cross. But we are called to speak truthfully. That is a mark of gospel community, of gospel living. It should bewilder the world that we speak truthfully, even at the risk of losing our own lives. That's often how the church grows. Like, they're not recanting. All they have to do is to say no, even if it's just for a moment. But no, we are people who are marked because we speak truthfully and we adhere to the truth. Those who have heard the gospel, received the gospel, proclaim the good news of the kingdom, they speak truthfully to one another and to others. And we do this because we have a new identity. Again, this is all rooted in who we are in our identity. We are found in Christ. We understand that since we are found in Christ, we are members of one another. We are one body. We are a holy organism. Therefore, we don't deceive one another. This image of the body of Christ is common in Paul's, letter, in Paul's letters. Romans 12, 4 through 5. For as in one body, we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. Right? It's talking about the diversity of gifts here. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And if you want another reference, you can check out 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 26. 
Paul continues on, verses 26 to 27, telling us not to allow our anger become cause for sin. Now again, it's not that anger in itself is sinful. There are times to be angry. However, we who are sinful creatures, even those who are redeemed, we have a very thin line that we get to walk when we become angry. So we need to be careful when we are angry. And in this instance, within community, Paul is talking about anger towards another brother or sister. And he puts a time limit on this. Don't allow the sun to go down on this anger. In other words, deal with it quickly and swiftly. Because if you don't, you give a foothold to the devil. And there were, there's nothing that pleases the devil more than to come in with a body of believers when somebody's angry at another and to allow bitterness to take root, envy, greed, uh, selfishness, and so forth, and split that body. Deal with the anger. We need to seek reconciliation quickly. John Chrysostom, 4th century archbishop of Constantinople, wrote, we are commanded to have only one enemy, the devil. Within him, well, excuse me, with him, never be reconciled. But with a brother or a sister, never be at enmity in your heart. And I know that's not always easy, and we'll talk about that in a moment. In verse 28, Paul tells us that we are to work honestly, not for selfish gain, but to work for the purpose of sharing with those in need. He uses the example of a thief, not just a simple illustration, but when a thief, when he is converted, he is to stop stealing. And he is not only to start working for a living, but he works for a living not for himself, but for others to share for others, especially those in need. So the principle here is that we live for others, not simply for ourselves. Thus, when we work, we work not for my own gain, not for my own purposes or my own pleasures, but to meet the needs of others. And this is reflective of the nature of Christ, who is the second person of the Trinity. See, within the triune nature of God, we see each person of the Godhead doing this, working and acting in love with regard to the other persons of the Godhead. Therefore, we who have embraced the identity of the second person, being created after the likeness of a triune God, we also must exhibit similar behavior. Therefore, we must ensure that we do not become lazy or idle members of the church. Each of us, as we are physically and mentally able, we are to work so that we may share with one another. What we earn, what God blesses us with, we should be ready and able to share that, especially with those in need. To put it in a negative light, parasitic behavior is unbecoming of the believer. For the body of Christ to be healthy, it must rid itself of any and all parasites. You know what a parasite is. Right? It has an unhealthy relationship with its host organism. It attaches itself to a body and it sucks whatever it needs from that body, contributing nothing to that body which it's attached to until that body either dies from the parasitic behavior or until the body's like, whoa, no, go, and gets rid of it, right? So parasites are not allowed. They're not meant to be part of the church, not even in the name of love. You can dress the parasitic behavior, but if they refuse to change, you do away with them. You cast them off. Now, there will always be some who are part of the body who physically and mentally are unable to give. Right? That's 
We live in a fallen world. That's a reality of the world in which we live in. However, the desire for them to give is there and it is evident. This is why elders need to be the shepherds that they're called to be, to shepherd the, uh, to shepherd the flock, to know their flock, and to know where people's hearts and motives lie. And anyone who has some sort of cognitive function in their brain should be able to pray. Right? So at the very least, you can give yourself over in prayer, and that's perhaps the biggest thing any saint can do um, in the ministry of God is to pray for the body and to pray for the word of God to go out powerfully. Now in verse 29, Paul goes back to the topic of speaking and says, Our talk should not be corrupting. When we speak to one another, we should always speak in a manner that seeks the good, the well-being of the other in their building up, right? This goes back to the house, us being built up, being joined together in one body. This means that sometimes we rebuke, we correct, um, and we um, train each other um, in the truth. But it also means we thank each other, we appreciate one another, and we encourage one another. Now, some of us are better at the rebuking, the correcting, and the teaching of one another, and some of us are better than those at thanking and encouraging one another. It's not that one is better than the other. We need both of them, and we need to recognize that some are better at, at doing one than the other. Uh, we, we need to try to have both of those when we talk to each other. Uh, we don't want to be heavy-handed on one or the other, but we can't be without one or the other. We need both um, ends of that spectrum. But whatever we say to one another, it needs to be said with the intention of building each other up. So let us not gossip, slander, let us not speak maliciously of others, um, and let us not be um, idle with all our talk either. Uh, consider Matthew 12, 36, Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Or, in this day and age, type. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. In other words, how you talk should be worth its salt. If you're opening your mouth, it better be worth my time, essentially. Or it better be, whatever you're saying to me, or whatever I say to you, better be for the building up of the body. Not for the tearing down, nor should it be just idle talk. So we need to be mindful of what we are saying. We need to vet what we are sharing as well. Paul in verse, verse 30 then gives us some motivation, some consideration for adherence to these instructions that he has given us. If we speak in an unholy manner or if we act in an unholy manner, we will grieve the spirit of which seals our souls for redemption. Now notice this, when Paul says it grieves the spirit, he's given an emotion to a person. The spirit is not just a, a thing or abstract force. The spirit is a third person of the Trinity. This is an example of where the spirit shares personal emotion because the spirit, he is a person. So Paul is saying if we act this way, if we act like the Gentiles, we will grieve the spirit. If we act as the world, even though we are sealed by the spirit, even though we are born again by the spirits, and we claim that we are um, in Christ by the Spirit, then we will upset the Spirit of God. And those who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ ought to never have the desire to do such a thing. In fact, when you are confronted with the reality that you have grieved the Spirit, the immediate and ultimate response should be like that of David before uh, Nathan last week, as we talked about. Like, I, I have sinned. I have offended. I have sinned against the Lord. And then that leads us to repentance, and then walking rightly. 
Paul then sums up this section in verses 31 and 32 by giving us a list of things to put away. Uh, Things to put away in verse 31 and things to embrace in verse 32. Verse 31, we are to put away the evil fruits of the old self. That's bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. Now note the word clamor. Some of you, it's a little bit older word. We don't use it as often. But this means noisy shouting, continuous noise, or insistent public expression in regard to a protest or in support of something. Essentially, by raising your voice or persistently making noise, you're hoping to influence the matter. It's absent truth, and you just hope that by being a squeaky wheel, whatever you're hoping to influence will come to fruition. In social media terms, this might be repetitive sharing or posting something that isn't necessarily true. You just want this to happen, and you haven't considered truth in it at all. If you want to influence others, influence them with the truth and trust in the Spirit to do his work. So be mindful of what you say, how you say it, and how often you say it and why you are saying it. We, in the next verse, we are to embrace the fruits of the new self that's found in Christ, that is being kind and tenderhearted while forgiving one another by the forgiveness of God. Before moving on to uh, the verses of 1 and 2 of the next chapter, I want to highlight Paul's admonition here in verse 32 of forgiving one another, which is best summed up by Charles Spurgeon. Does he say forgiving another? No, that is not the text. It is forgiving one another. That means that if you have to forgive today, it is very likely that you yourself will need to be forgiven tomorrow, for it is forgiving one another. Now, this statement is true for all of us, myself included. I am not, just because I'm a pastor, does that mean I'm excluded from the need for forgiveness? Perhaps more so uh, because of how often I'm talking. We all need forgiveness. And let us um, remember that when we go into our life groups especially, we need to keep this in mind. Again, right now, everybody's safe. Nobody's talking for the most part. Nobody's bothering each other for the most part. You're You're looking at me. You're sitting forward. Um, As far as I know, nobody's really offending um, anyone uh, too much. Uh, It's safe. But the minute you get into somebody's house outside of these walls and you start talking about life, you start doing things, you let your guard down, that stained glass masquerade is gone, you're going to offend somebody. Or somebody is going to offend you. And maybe even the leader of the group is going to offend you by his tone, by his sarcasm, by the way he answered the question, or maybe he forgot to answer the question. That puts you off. Maybe he forgot to pray for something. And so you're going to be offended. Well, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Forgive them. Seek reconciliation. But all this forgiveness, if we're mindful of Paul's words here, the need to forgive will happen less frequently. If we are mindful of our speech, if we are mindful of our manners and actions, and if we remember to put off the old self and renew our minds and put on the new self, we do those things, our speech and our actions, they will take care of themselves because we've put on the new self. And and the instances of offending one another will be less frequent. It it will still happen, but it won't be as often. And if we remember how or where we are to walk, that will help us as well. And that brings us to Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. Let's read those two verses. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
in community, in this one body with a diversity of gifting and diversity of personalities, all of us are to imitate God. We are to be relational. If you want to imitate God, you have to have other people in your life, other brothers and sisters in Christ. The Father has a Son and the Spirit. That's it's who he is. It's who God is. We need other brothers and sisters of Christ. You can't be part of a finger that's on the floor. It's not part of a body. It's detached. It's, it's, it's dismembered. And eventually, because it has no blood, it will rot away. It's useless. It's, 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 it'll, it's good for the soil. That's about it. But to be part of a body is to be part of a finger that's part of the eyes, the hands, the ears, the heart, all of it. We need to be part of the body. You cannot do this. You cannot imitate God in a silo. You cannot imitate God online typing away. You have to be in the physical presence of other body, other brothers and sisters in Christ. When we do this, when we walk in love, we, we, we're, we're, excuse me, when we imitate God, we are called to walk in love. Now, what does walking in love exactly look like? Well, Paul tells us. We don't need to get mystical here. Paul tells us, walk in love as Christ loved us which is a love that's ultimately rooted in sacrifice as demonstrated by Christ giving himself up for us. When we think of how Christ loved us, it's a life that, remember, think about it, the Son of God leaving the right hand of the Father to take on flesh, giving up his right to be up there, giving up his honor to be up there, becoming like man, obedient to the Father to the point of death, on a cross, a public humiliating death, not just any death, but a slow, suffering, public humiliating death. And for who? For those who regularly offend and those who regularly wound. This is the love that we are called to walk in together. This cannot happen by you sitting in your chairs now, nor can this be happened done simply in your homes with your families. This is a love that happens within a community of believers beyond the biological bonds of your family and beyond the physical walls of this building. Now, this means to walk in this love, more than likely, you're going to get hurt. You're gonna, you become part of a life group, you're going to get hurt. You, if you're faithful to the church long enough, you will get wounded, you will get offended. And I don't say that lightly. I myself have been wounded a couple of times. I have, deep, I have some deep wounds from the past, from the church, and I think most of them are scars now because I think they've healed. But I still have wounds that the church has done. But we have to learn to walk in love as Christ did. If Christ just gave up every time the disciples offended him, said something, did something that he told them not to do, boy, we would be in a world of hurt right now. But he was faithful. He loved. Likewise, you and I were called to demonstrate that love to one another. So when we become part of a life group or when we serve a church and the church says, does something you don't like or offends you, you can't just say, well, I'm leaving. That's not Christ-like. That's not what Christ did. You, that's not imitating God. We are called to bear with one another, forgive one another, to seek reconciliation, not to allow anger, not to allow the sun go down our, our anger. So I know being faithful to Scripture and being faithful to one another, you're going to get hurt. It's going to happen sooner or later. And I pray that it's not too severe, it's not too great, but if you renew your mind, put off the old self, put on the new self, you, for one, will be able to forbear it better, and you'll be more equipped. You will be more, you'll be a healthier body to uh, absorb the attack, so to speak, on your soul. 
I wish I could tell you it's going to be all sunshine and rainbows and flowers, but it's not. You're dealing with sinners, you who is, are one of them. So we need to love one another as Christ loved us. And so we need to consider the cross often and regularly. We need to be on our knees regularly to pray for protection, to pray for one another, to be in his word so we know how to do this. You, you leave all that stuff behind, you're going to get hurt and you're not going to know how to process it. And, you, and you're going to eventually leave the church. But we need to cling to the cross in the midst of all this. So this is why we are doing life groups. For just as God in his triune nature is relational, so we desire to be relational with one another despite the risks. By regularly committing to do life together, we are more able to put off the old self as we challenge one another and we hold one another accountable. Because if, I, if, if all I see is you here on Sunday, I don't know who you are. You can tell me all you want. Stained glass masquerade, put it on, I'm not going to know. But outside of these walls, it's going to be easier. I start playing softball with you, you get competitive, you start saying some words you typically won't say at church, I'm going to know you a little bit more, right? I'm going to be able to challenge you, account, hold you accountable, and then call you out in the middle of a sermon. <laughs> not, not by name, I won't do that. Not without your permission. As we gather, we are more able to renew our minds as we teach and instruct and correct and wrestle over the word of God together. And, you know, that's, if we want to wrestle over the word of God together, part of the sacrificial living, sacrificial love that we have for each other is recognizing that when we're not together, that how we spend our time eventually benefits the body. So when I'm not with you, it benefits the body for me to be in the word of God. When you're not with your life group and you're doing the study of John, the Psalms, whatever, you read the passage before you go to the life group. You read other books so you can be more equipped to be a faithful brother and sister in Christ, to help your other brothers and sisters in Christ, to handle whatever is before them. And you pray for them. So you got to live sacrificially, not just when you're with them physically, but when you're apart from them as well. Gathering together allows us to be more equipped to put on the new self as we pray for one another, as we encourage one another, and point one another to the promises of Scripture and the promises of the gospel, especially after one of us has sinned, especially after we have fallen, or after we have experienced great loss, suffering, or we have been wounded. We need to be reminded of the promises of Scripture. If I have sinned, Perhaps the most important thing that another brother and sister of Christ can do is remind me that I am justified before the Father, not because of my actions, but because of Jesus Christ. And I, am, I will never lose that. And so I'm encouraged to confess that sin, repent, and walk confidently with the joy of the gospel. That's a key thing. We need to be there for each other to remind ourselves the truths of the Scripture. Being part of a community of believers outside of Sunday morning, therefore should be a priority for everyone here. If your life is too busy, you need to make it less busy. It needs to be, bu- if your life is busy, it should be because you're busy doing the work of God. You need to make it a priority to connect with believers outside of the church. If you call yourself a Christian, if you, call, if you have learned Christ and you've put on the new self, you're going to be with other believers. Our activity outside of the church building 
will help fuel our activity within the building. You spend time with the saints during the week. When you come to gather with the other saints on Sundays, you're going to be more encouraged. You're going to want to praise God. You're going to want to hear the voices of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ um, lifting up the promises and the praises of God to him. You're going to want to feed off of his word on Sunday morning because during the week you encountered this situation, this problem, and you, you want the truth. But if you're not doing anything out there that's related to the kingdom, you're not going to want the kingdom in here. So if you do kingdom work out there, you're going to want the presence of the kingdom. You're going to want the presence of his glory in here. So our activity out there fuels our activity within here. And I pray that our activity here, likewise, will fuel our activity out there. And so at this time, we're going to partake in one of those activities, which uh, I pray fuels our activity out there, and that is communion. We do communion as one body to remind ourselves of the gospel which has been proclaimed to us through his word and passed down through the ages under the care of his bride, his church, under the protection of his Holy Spirit. That our Lord Jesus Christ, these elements remind us that our Lord Jesus Christ gave his body for us in the cracker. The juice reminds us that our Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood for us in love and obedience to the Father as he hung on the cross, absorbing, taking on the fullness of God's wrath, which was reserved for you and I. And it's true, this promise, this is what calls us into the kingdom. This is what calls us to love one another. It's what calls us to forgive one another because you have been forgiven, not because you have done anything to earn it, but simply because of the grace of God. So when somebody offends you, you are merciful. You give them forgiveness because you have been shown mercy, because you have been forgiven a debt far greater than anything anyone can do in here uh, to you or to your family. So uh, I'm going to, in a moment, I'm going to pray, bless the elements. After I pray, you'll have an opportunity to pray yourself. If you're a believer in Christ, you're welcome to come to the table as long as, you do, you're, as, long as you're not holding on to any uh, willful, um, unrepentant sin. Uh, so in your prayer, ask the Spirit to convict you, to bring forth these sins, confess them, um, to uh, delight in the truth that you're forgiven and in which this table represents um, and then come forth. You do not have to be baptized. However, you're not baptized. Um, let's have that conversation. Let's get you in full obedience to uh, the scriptures. But for any reason, you have any guilt, any conscience that's saying, oh, you know, maybe not this week, oh, abstain from this week. It's going to be here, Lord willing, next week, unless the Lord comes back, which we'll, we'll, have, a, we'll have the communion then, the, the feast, um, wine and bread and all that more with, with the Lord and Savior. But at this time, um, I'll pray, then you'll pray, and then um, when you're ready, uh, you can come on up and then uh, leave um, one of our elders. He will be serving the elements uh, for you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder of who we are and the life that we are called to live and the life that we're called to reject. Father, this can be hard for some of us. We, we, when we come to you and we're born again, there are things that we hold on to. We're supposed to drop all of our luggage, but that's easier said than done, Father. And I would ask that the spirit, that your truth here this morning would discern and divide and, and, and split our souls and, and, and just really take away that garbage, that gunk that's in our lives and that you would take the affections that we have for worldly things, that you would, you would remove them from those things of the world and that you would put them upon your truth, upon your character, upon your bride and, and have us to 
think and, and desire and, and yearn for the things that are of the kingdom. Help us to seek the kingdom first above all things. And help us to have the joy in that, Father. But Father, also prepare us, protect us. Help us to put on the armor of light. Help us to put on the armor of God. Because the devil's out there. He's prowling, Father. And apart from you, we are powerless to his schemes. But in your Son, by the power of the Spirit, in your truth, Father, we are protected. We are mighty warriors. And Father, help us to not forget that. And as such, help us to go to the sword. Your word, uh, by the leading of the Spirit, by the illumination of the Spirit, help us to go to your word, to drink of this living water, to to know what you have said um, in how we ought to live and how we ought to speak to one another, how we are to serve one another. That way, Father, when we hurt because of another person, Father, that we can forgive them. And if there's anyone here, Father, who has been hurt by the church, who has been hurt by another brother or sister in Christ, may your spirit comfort them right now and, and bless them, Father. And, and may they hear the grace. Uh, may they know the grace that you have given to them, the forgiveness that you have offered them, the love that you have given them, Father. And that they can, in that recognition, therefore be loving towards another sinner. And forgive them as well. Allow the wounds to heal. The scars may remain so we may be all the wiser. But allow the wounds to heal so that we can walk faithfully in the truth. And Father, there's anyone who is hurting because of past wounds. You know, make that known to another brother and sister in Christ. Give them the courage to share that, to ask for prayer, to to meet with myself or one of the other elders or, or another brother and sister in Christ. Help us to be there for one another. Help us to walk with one another in love. Help us to speak truth with one another in love. Help us not to be neglectful of our own duties, our own piety. Help us to be faithful to our own disciplines when we're not with the body. Therefore, we are all the more equipped to serve the body. And Father, we ask this not for our glory, but for your glory. We want your glory to be known. We want a a bright light to shine from out of Hope Community Church into West Salem and into the Cooley region so that a revival can happen in accordance to your will and your kingdom can be advanced and you will be glorified, Father. Help us to be servants of your work, to submit ourselves to that. Help us to be a community, to live in such a way that when people see it, they want to be a part of it. And Father, we would ask that you would soften the hearts of those who are in the darkness, that you would shine your light into their lives, that we would be the vessels of that light, and that we would be the, 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 the heralders and the stewards of your good news to them. Father, I ask that you'd be with each of the life groups as they start out as well, that you would bless the leaders, that you would bless those who commit their time to these groups. I ask for those who aren't part of life groups, who haven't, um, being part of one or those who are on the fence or those who don't want to, that your spirit would work in their hearts, that you would pull them in, help them realize this is for their good and it's for your glory. Guide them to where you want them to be. Help us to be patient with one another, Father. Help us to love one another. Help us to be kind, tenderhearted to one another. Help us to forgive one another. Help us to forbear with one another, Father. We thank you Father, for all that you've done for us, we thank you that our sins are forgiven by the work, by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, of which we come to this table in remembrance of. So we ask that you would bless the elements, the cracker and the juice, that they would nourish our souls, that they would be a blessing to us, a a gift, a, a taste of your glory, a taste of what is to come. 
and that it would encourage us to live in accordance to our identity so that we do not grieve the Spirit and that when your Son comes, whenever that day comes, whenever that moment happens, or whenever you call us home, whenever we take our last breath, we will be ready. Father, we ask all these things for your great glory, by power of the Holy Spirit, which dwells within us, which seals us forever, and in the name and by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.